0: Welcome to Live Free Ride Free where we talk to people who have lived self actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success and most importantly find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times bestselling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free,
1: where we talk to people who live self-actualized lives and find out how they got there, what they do, what keeps them going, and what their insights are for how the rest of us can live this way as well. I'm a firm believer that this is the birthright of everybody on the planet. And so the more mentorship all of us get, the better. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce today's guest. And today's guest is probably, if you were to look up in the dictionary, self actualized there'd be a picture of this person or there ought to be anyway, because I can't really think of anyone I know. Even I know so many have met so many, privileged to meet so many people, living self-actualized lives, but Linda Tellington-Jones is as self-actualized as it gets. And you don't have to be a horse person, even though she is a horse person, to know about her. There's many people who know about Tellington Touch through dogs. There are people who know about Tellington Touch through horses. People who know about Linda Tellington-Jones through healing techniques. People who just know about her because she's a jolly, jolly, interesting human being alive on planet Earth today. And I've been grateful and honored to know Linda for well over a decade and even to work together on occasion. And I've always been fascinated by the egolessness. That's a a tough act to follow, Linda, where you're going to come in a minute when I say your egolessness. But I have met a lot of well-known people and it's not easy to keep the ego out of the way. We're only human. And I've always been a bit intrigued about how you manage that. So we're going to, I'm going to be asking you about that. And then also, if any of you are ever lucky enough to actually be in the same room as Linda Sellington Jones, here is my tip. Ask her to put her hands on you. T-Touch is not just an idea. It's, it's a real thing. And I remember the first time Linda put her hands on me, the reaction was, as powerful as with any shaman in the Kalahari I've ever been with or anything like that. There's something flowing through, Linda Turnington-Jones, but it also flows through in a way that she can impart this knowledge to other people and has been doing this for about 30 years or more, 40 probably. And so anyway, I've blabbered enough. I'm just bigging you up, Linda, because you're big. How can one not big you up? So here we are. Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm very excited when you say there's something in my hands. i would tell you what's in my hands that's in all of your, potentially in every, the hands of every person on this planet, is the realization that this, that this body that we have, we are miracles, Rupert. And I say this because I, the realization that, wait a minute, do you know how your blood flows, what it is that makes your blood flow? how you can move your arm, why your lymph works, why the hormones work. We're living miracles. And it's so interesting because I, I'd like to tell you my story and maybe it will be inspiring to some of your listeners who realize paying attention to the what comes to us out of the blue, so to speak, intuitively from the as I see it today, the quantum field is there for everyone. So you'll want to know how I started on this path. Mm -hmm. First of all, I keep this little box for a reminder of what started me on this path that I'm on right now. And this, I'm going to take this out of here and show it to you. I've Kept it over all these years. And I for my 30th birthday, I'm now coming up to 86. I'm 85 this year. And I saw an advertisement in the San Francisco Chronicle that said for $5, you can get one of the first astrological charts done on a computer. And It was my understanding that that particular computer was in Stanford Research, in in Stanford basement, university basement. I don't know if that's true, but that's the story that I've been telling myself all these years. So I sent my $5 and I got this little book and it says, Your Portrait in the Stars, an astrological psychoanalysis of you. And it's all this beautiful little book. I mean, I say beautiful, carefully done like with a ribbon tied. Hole punch. Remember how we did these mimeograph things? I mean, it's so interesting. And this is ninety-eight pages, and what I got from those pages has has directed my life. It said, "In your lifetime, you will you will develop a form of communication that will spread around the world." Huh, interesting. And in order to do so, you must learn to trust your intuition huh, it's interesting that I read that. That's only two sentences in that, all of those pages. But that's what I take away with me. And that's what I've carried with me over all these years. And so, of course, my question is, first of all, what communication? I was thinking it was just the year within the time when we we're starting to get videos. And I thought, maybe it's a way of getting my workout through video. And then I thought, okay, intuition. And my first husband, which was Killington, bless his soul, because I wouldn't be here without him. He was really into science and spirituality, and we had a big library. And I just went to the library and reached up and picked out a book. Not, I didn't know what it was. I pulled it out, and it happened to be a Rosicrucian book, and I opened it and I looked up the definition of intuition, and it was unlearned knowledge. Today, Rupert, I know, thanks to quantum science, that unlearned knowledge is available without the library to all of us. We just have to listen. And it's all here. Every thought that was ever thought is here in the quantum field. And we just have to listen and trust. So, what has led me, and you? I want you to interrupt me at any time because
1: I do have two questions. Okay, uh, question ahead. number one How old were you when you answered this ad in the San Francisco Chronicle?
2: Third, it was for my 30th birthday. A Your gift, 30th birthday.
1: Okay, birthday my 30th now, birthday. second question Have you spoken to anybody else who got who who did a similar astrological portrait? It would be interesting to know what was said to them. I mean, that's the Yeah, the third question is. What was the work that you were considering videoing at that? time? what year are we talking here?
2: Now we're talking 1967, and I had an international school, riding school for instructors, Pacific Coast Equestrian Research Farm and School of Horsemanship at, uh, at Badger, California. We had students who came to us from 36 states and eight, and nine countries around the world.
1: So back up, long before you get this thing for your 30th birthday, 30 is a young age to be running a riding and horsemanship academy that's international with international clients coming in. As someone who's run such things myself, I know what's entailed, and I don't think I could have done it at 30.
2: Well, I couldn't either. I was the riding teacher with my husband, okay. Wendell Ellington, who was 20 years older than I, and who had, you know, he'd gone to Annover and, and.
1: And he was a horseman too.
2: He was also a horseman, and I have a, a, a beautiful picture of him riding and jumping, which I just came about on, and then I realized it's in this book, Strike a Long Top Trot, a Legendary Horsewoman, Linda Jones. It's the story of my school written by Shannon Weil, who was a student in 1967 for a year, and she and I have stayed in touch all these years. She's an amazing human being today. In her own right.
1: So, so what work were you doing at this riding academy that you wanted to bring out to the world at that point? What was different about that than any other riding school, even if it was a very high level riding school? What stood out? What made you think this is something we need to communicate?
2: Because we had a way of teaching riding that was logical. So we had 30 points of the balance seat. And you see, Rupert, in order to come to our school, you had to have 10 years of riding experience. And they came from all over the country, and they came with many different styles of riding. And our riding was based on the U.S. Cavalry, American style of balance seat riding. And so rather than our, and I, I know this was the influence of both my parents and of my husband, and that is rather than make people wrong and saying you're doing it wrong, we showed what we wanted instead of making them wrong because some people came from saddle feet riding you know they came from the jumping world they came from dressage they came from in those days for many different styles and in the country like western riding was different on the east coast or texas and rather than say you're not this is not the way we want you to ride we we gave them this choice this is a way of you all you have to do is change your saddle and the length of stirrup and you can go into these different seats that you want and understand what seat it is that you're actually wanting to do for this purpose. Because of course we also did hundred mile endurance riding. So you have a different seat for a jumper a dressage. And that's what we taught it was a, thanks to my husband, Wentworth Tillington, it was a logical way of riding.
1: So would you say that you were teaching, you were taking these riders from all these disciplines with all these different seats? And by the way, for those listeners who are not horse people, the seat is your point of balance on the horse. And it's not just your ass. It goes from your mid thigh up to sort of just below your rib cage, really. It's all that, everything that keeps you in balance on the horse. But because there are all these separate disciplines of riding that are really quite radically different, there are radically different ways of sitting the horse. And each one of them is, is correct in its own discipline but many people do not cross discipline. So my question is, were you guys coming up with a sort of a a neutral on the gear stick saying, okay, you've got all these different gears you can ride in, but you need to come back to end on the, on the gear stick or so, so that you can be versatile and branch out into all these things or were well, you something different.
2: Depending upon what, who your student was, what, what the breed of horse was, what the competition was okay. Western English. They had to, in order to graduate, they had to, compete in a western pleasure class they had to ride a 50 mile endurance ride successfully they had to compete in dressage and in jumping it was and that means you had to know how to teach that those different styles successfully depending upon which part of the country you were in or world
1: and then what when these people graduated from your school at that point in your life what did they what advantage did they have professionally did they have some sort of accredited qualification that helped them get better paying jobs in the horse industry or what was what was the incentive or was it just pure personal development
2: well first of all it was the intent for those who wanted to be riding instructors or trainers to turn out people who knew how to dress and we had a dress code so you had to come to dinner in a dress and i will tell you the first
1: what even me would you have found not not the guys (laughs) no
2: only the women and that was a real hazard for some women the first year we put that out one woman didn't come to dinner for i don't know it was probably possibly a week she wanted to eat in a room because she never worn a skirt a little interesting why did
1: you have this dress code what was what was the what was the objective with that
2: well that was the objective to turn out people who had a, a level of respect and not just come to dinner in your barn clothes, because we had candlelight dinners, and my husband Wentworth, played the classical grand piano. We had, a, we had a very large grand piano in our dining room. And one of the things we did, Rupert in our school. do you remember, there are many famous teachers who are famous because they throw rocks at their students or they yell and scream at them. What we wanted to do was teach respect, respect for the horse. And respect for yourself and respect for other people so writing was not done from the i mean teaching was not done from the point of view of making someone wrong it was how can we make them right how can we acknowledge that they're doing the best they can and how can we with logic show them how to come to these places of balance and understand what they're doing
1: so when people graduated from your program what did they go on to do what was to them was the objective of coming
2: well, actually, there, there were, I think, two objectives. One, I would say to people, the horse world is a very hard business. If you love horses, come and spend a year with us. Learn, do the, you know, really learn how to ride. And if you want to show, you'll know how to be successful. And, cho- and go to university and choose a career that will make you enough money that you can afford to have your horses and not have them as a the business. But for those who did want to go on and teach, I have in the back of this book are some of our successful teachers. And it's really lovely to hear from some of them who went on and ran very big writing programs. And
0: So you also taught them how
1: to run a business and make it work for themselves professionally, not just here's the technique, here's how to be a good technician. That's right. And
2: also like every Friday we had during the day, they would get up in the morning. Each person had two horses to look after in the stable. And then we would have breakfast and have two hours of riding lessons in the morning. And then you'd have in the afternoon, they had a, a study period and, and other free riding if they wanted. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then in, we had dinner, you dress for dinner. And then after dinner, there was a study period. And every Friday, there was a two-hour test on everything to do with horses. And we still have those tests and they're really interesting to look at them today. I couldn't pass it today. I have forgotten so much stuff. Oh my God. So it's really, it was, it was an incredible school.
1: So let's just back up a bit because you're already here in mid-career and now, and after running the school, you decide, okay, we've got something really good to communicate about horses and horsemanship to the world. But Your story starts way before that. So let's back up. Where are you born and when?
2: I was born in 1937 in Edmonton, Alberta at 7.39 in the morning. It's actually on my astrological chart here. I have three grand trines in my chart. Pretty interesting.
1: What are those for those of us who are not astrological?
2: I don't know how to describe it. Every astrologer who looks at that thing says, oh my God, you've got three grand trines. I don't know what that means.
1: Okay. (laughs) It means it means look out world. Right. Yeah, and you're born in Edmonton. Are your parents horsey? What are your what are your parents?
2: Oh, my parents are so incredible, and I I wish I'd have could pull up quickly screen share with you some pictures here because I had to ride to school, Robert, for the first six years of my life. When I was six years old, we lived. My dad had gone to help my grandfather. Well, first of all, when I was we lived in Edmonton, and then when I was three, we moved to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territory for my dad to help my mother's dad with a gold mine that he had. So I, one of the first pictures that I have with me is with me with a baby bear lying on my aunt's lap, and I'm standing there with my fingers in the, in the, on the ear of the bear and it's so interesting. This is a, Jeremy, a German saying. In German says, "So began the master," because ear tea touch is one of the big things that we do to gain trust. And and so here I am with my fin- my little tiny finger that was eleven months old, standing there with my fingers on the baby bear's ear. And my 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 father had rescued that bear, and because the mother had been shot and the bear was left alone. So we raised it and then. I mean, didn't raise it, but rescued it and then released it. So that was my first introduction to that. So then we moved to to it back to my my father working with my, let's see, with his father, James Hood, and on his wheat and pig farm, because it was during the war, and there was a big war effort, you know, to raise food for the war effort. And so at six years old, the school that I would go to was a, was a one-room schoolhouse and, you know, six rows. And I, it was a long walk for a six-year-old, so I, with my cousins, rode our horses to school. So my dad took me to a riding stable, I remember this part, and the guy brought out a horse and I got on the horse's back and that nobody told me what to do and the horse immediately took me back into the barn at the walk, fortunately. And so my dad bought this horse named Trixie, and we have some really some very nice looking mare. And I rode into school, and you're going to get a giggle out of this. One day I was late, and my cousins didn't wait for me. They were like a eighth of a mile up the road on the way to school. So I headed out, and then when I got to the gate, my horse wouldn't go because she was had to go alone. And I gave her a whack with the reins, and she immediately turned and dumped me on the ground. I say that I'm shorter than my sister Robin because I landed on my head. (laughs) So anyway, I land her home. I remember what I remember is marching home, putting her in the stable, walking to the house, getting a clothespin from my mother's clothes basket, walking to the barn and clipping the clothespin on her ears to show her that she couldn't do that to me. Isn't that funny? you saying so. We say that's the first ear tea touch.
1: That was a clothespin in your ear.
2: <laughs> it's a long spin, like I'm sure. And, she
1: and what did she think of that?
2: I didn't ask her. I thought she thought, wow, this kid really lost it.
1: <laughs> did you then remount her and ride to school, or were you just making? I don't points? remember. <laughs> okay.
2: I, I'm sure I didn't because I couldn't tell.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so at what point do you go from just purely functional transport based sports you know riding to discovering you're going to be doing this as a vocation how, how does this play out in your childhood and adolescence
2: well it's quite interesting because when i was 9 my dad moved to we moved to the outskirts of edmonton alberta which was the capital of alberta and he had rented a farm from my uncle alf and for a dairy farm And so on the way, we drove by a riding stable, which was just a couple of miles from where, from the farm, the dairy farm. And as we drove by, there was a quadrille of horses in a big arena practicing. And I asked my dad if I could take lessons because I'd never had a lesson no one had ever shown me what to do with horses. I've been riding every day for three years. So he said, yes, if you can get a job. So the next Saturday, he dropped me off at the gate, and I marched in, and I asked Mrs. Metherall, you know, I said who I was, and I asked if I could trade lessons for working. I thought I would be cleaning stalls or equipment or something. And so she asked me about, you know, did I ride? And I told her that she put me, she had really, really good horses and some lovely ponies for kids and besides. So she put me on a pony and then on a horse and she saw that I could ride. And I never cleaned a stall. I was one of those kids that just got to ride. So I would go home, like I'd ride to school, I'd ride home and then I'd ride in the other direction to, to the stable every day rain or shine or snow. And then I would ride two or three horses. And every Tuesday, Mrs. Metherall would have us in for dinner, the students who were really active. And we would have lessons on, you know, bits and bridles and ailments and illnesses and feeding. She had an amazing feeding program with so many huge bins of herbs. And it was a really incredible background that i had from this woman she was well known and and she had many good show horses and many clients with show horses so you've got a question so
1: well you said herbs and you're talking now in the 40s people feeding herbs to horses i know having grown up in leicestershire in the uk and horse country that there were certain old school horse people who knew the herbs but most people by the time i arrived on the horse scene it, it was largely forgotten and people even and the you know, small family feed mills that one used to put together one's own. That was there when I was a small boy, but that had basically gone by the time my adolescence it and everything was mass produced at that point. Tell me about the herbs and tell me about, because I know this is going to, this must have informed to some degree your later career in holistic healing. So t- tell me about the whole use of herbs and what did you pick up from this?
2: Well, what I picked up is that she really knew what she was doing, and that's something which that she did not teach us. but where I picked it up from your country, where you come from is the Hilton herbs, because as soon as first of all at our research farm, wentworth was and we have these wonderful pictures because we had a newsletter that went out to twenty countries of the, from a research farm, and he was drying the kelp, a certain form of sea kelp, drying it, and then free feeding it to our horses. And then he also developed a form of what he called vitamins and mineral mix that he brewed from all, all kinds of stuff. So it was amazing. And we sold that all over. And the steak kelp was, when you look at now, steak kelp is a really great product that's out there. But yeah, and we that's were fashionable, first, yeah. We were the first, we being my husband, Wedgward, was the first to bring that up at our research firm.
1: Okay, I'm get, we're gonna get back to Wentworth and your research farm in a minute, but I still feel we've got a few years to cover. So there you are, you're riding You're, you're riding to school, you're riding home, you're riding to the stables, you're r- starting to ride horses professionally now as a, as a pre-adolescent. What happens then? How do you, and you're still way up in Northern Canada, you're a long way from California, you're a long way from this international career that you've had for the last, you know, 45 or more years. How does that evolve? How do you drift south and into this cosmopolitan world?
2: Well, let's see where it... Well, first of all, one of the things that people marvel at is the fact that I'm willing at Equitana, I don't know, perhaps you've seen me get on many different horses that I've never seen before and take the bridle off and ride them with no bridle.
1: I will... Let me just jump in there. Okay. Please. Just for the just for the listeners. All right. So if the listeners who don't know what Equitana is, Equitana is the German trade fair for the horse industry that happens every couple of years in
2: World largest. Just-
1: it, it's 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 a monster. It's it's huge. It's, if, if you think horses are a fringe thing, think again. If you think think like Frankfurt Book Fair as Frankfurt Book Fair is for publishing, this is for the horse industry in at, at international global. That's the first thing. That's a big deal. And Linda's always there. But the second thing is she says, oh, yes, I, I just hop on, up on people's horses and bridle us and so on. I will attest to this. I was, I don't know if you remember this, Linda, we were, me and Ileana were helping you at one of your workshops in Texas a few years ago. And if you, I don't know if you remember, a really, really strong norther came in, which is a, a, a weather front where the winds gust up to, you know, 60 miles an hour or more. And the temperature goes down, you know, 30, 40 degrees in half an hour. It's a Texas winter phenomenon. And it goes from sort of subtropical to subarctic really fast. And it tends to send horses absolutely nuts. And there was this very, very, very flighty Egyptian Arab mare, who was there not human, but horse. And for those in the horse world, they know that's a, you know, at, at, at best, it can be a somewhat dangerous horse to get on. This horse was going a little bit nuts. The owner couldn't, really control it. And we go, oh, well, I'm sure Linda will probably just take that one out and go back to the box. No, Linda aged probably at that point, 78 or so, just gets on, just gets on in this highway with this horse who's clearly losing it. And the horse ceases to lose it. And I remember my wife, Iliana and I look at each other going, oh, that's a horsewoman. Okay, so that's, that's it's not something that's for those of you who are not horsey, that's not something people do. Not if you want to stay out of hospital. So, okay. We rewind. I just need to So you're saying, okay, people often remark on the fact that it's remarkable that you get up on these horses without a bridle. Yes, it is true. Go on.
2: So my background for that is this stable, Mrs. Ellis Metherall, because she had many People with really beautiful horses, but they didn't have the confidence to show in the Edmonton Spring Horse Show. And the Edmonton Spring Horse Show was like Madison Square Gardens. It started on a set one Saturday and went every day from 8 in the morning till 11 at night with classes. And in those days, we had horses like, it wasn't unusual to have 40 horses in a pleasure class. And of course, that many and jumping and bullet. So it was my job because I was the kid who was there every day riding like two or three horses after school in no arenas. You all, I mean, you had to be. You know, I've been described as tough as a boiled owl, and I think that comes from riding in the dark in the snow. We had a few lights out there, but it was not pleasant. But it was really an amazing thing riding the, all these different horses from other from from the mother group of horses and from from clients and so I would they'd take a horse to a horse show and I would have 10 minutes to get on that horse and get it ready to go in the class and I won way more than my share and I know why Rupert I didn't go in to win when I got on that horse my message to the horse and I realized today we can talk about energy because we know what energy is and I want to talk about that in a minute I would give the horse the impression, what can we do together in this time that we have that will make you, give you as much joy as I am having of being with you? That was my... Just repeat
1: that? that. That's a really, that's a... That. that I just yeah. did a double take. Repeat that, your message to the horse.
2: That I, I wanted this horse to know, I wanted the horse to have as good a time with me, whatever we were going to do together as I would have with that horse. So it wasn't about me. That's where the ego comes in. And that's a practice, Rupert. It's not that I get on, I'm going to show this horse what to do. No, we're going to go in and do something here together in this group of horses. And my mother was very important because my mother would sit on the edge of the arena. And I remember her like almost every time I kill her, smile, dear, smile. And she had no idea that... When you smile when you're on a horse, or anytime you smile, you activate the feel good hormone, the serotonin. The horse feels that. That's been shown through these, you know, these, these, the, this research that's been done with the mirror neurons, right. how we mirror this feeling. And it activates that part of the brain that feels good. So the horse feels good too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's it's actually my standard go to when I get on a young horse that I'm afraid of because I secretly am quite afraid quite often when I get on clients' horses, I do that. I plaster this big old grin on my face and it works. I'm like, suddenly my body relaxes and the horse is like, oh, this isn't so bad. And I'm like, and then then it isn't, absolutely. But where did you get this from? So this inner message that you're saying to the horse, let this be as joyful for you as I would like it to be for me. Was that a decision? Was that something you'd overheard? Was that part of some system of ethics that was, talked about by a mentor or someone you looked up to or was that something more intuitive and innate or was it some combat
2: what comes to my mind when you ask me that question is my my great uncle standing with me in the stable when i was where i i was given a book when so first of all go back to mrs metherall and the way she started horses within the round pen bucking them out and she had so many injuries and she'd been had so many broken bones because the horse there that like an eight foot high round pan small and she would just saddle the horse get on it and bucket it, bucket it out right so she was hurt a lot of times and one day i was riding home from the stable and an old man walked out on with a cane and a book in his hand and he said his his porch gave him a view of the the riding arena right behind him and the round pen, And he said he had seen me riding by every day, rain, snow, or shine. And he wanted me to have this book. And it was a book written by an American cavalry officer on how to start young horses without bucking. And so I took that home, and my parents were boarding a 16-hand two-year-old thoroughbred that belongs to one of our friends. And they said that I could start this horse under saddle. So I just took the book and I went through all the steps of ground driving.
1: How old are you at this point?
2: I was 11 or 12. And it was really easy to follow it. And she never bucked and was never afraid. And it was an easy process. And that's the basis. Now, I remember my grandfather in the stable, and we had adapted one one end of the barn that had been a cow stable we made big box stalls and I remember him putting his hand on the horse's neck and saying to me you know whenever you connect with a horse connect with your heart connect with kindness okay
1: so this came from within from a family member
2: right yeah what was his story
1: how did he how did he come by this
2: well, this is really. I wish that I have been prepared. I should pull together some pictures. It'd be really fun to see it. My grandfather Will Kaywood was an American jockey, and quite well known. We have, we have mother
1: side or father's side,
2: mother's mother side. Kaywood.
1: Horses were in the family. Uh, um, yes, okay. both sides. Uh, okay.
2: Both sides. Uh, I want to tell you that. So my, my grandfather, Will Kaywood had been approached by an Austrian count through an agent to be to go to Moscow in Russia from from this is from the US and ride the horses of this Austrian who sent the horses from Vienna to Moscow. And so my grandfather rode them in nineteen oh five. He went there and rode them. And and he liked it so much in Russia, he decided to stay on and become a trainer. And so, in 1905, he won the prestigious Tsar Nicholas II. It was a it was a jeweled cane for the most winners of the season, and uh, with 87 winners, and he said he attributed because he came to actually this is a whole kind of call difficult story sure, because I never met him. It was my great uncle, his brother, I met. And they were in business in horses. And I have a painting that I've now given to my niece, Mandy. I have a horse named Cinthilla that they imported. And this horse was very successful. And they, the jockey did this painting. But my grandfather said that his success was because He never entered a horse in a race unless it told him it was feeling fit enough to win. And the second thing is, every horse was rubbed with these short little strokes over every inch of the body for 30 minutes by the grooms. And he learned that from a Russian gypsy named Orlov, because in still today in Russia, it's the gypsies that handle all the horses on the racetrack. And I got to meet them when I was there as a citizen diplomat so did you
1: did you notice now we're jumping ahead but did you notice when you did go and meet these grooms on the russian racetrack did you did you see a similarity between the way they were touching the horse and i didn't
2: i didn't see them actually touching the horse i was with the directors and stuff introducing myself and and the work that I was doing. So I didn't get them actually see them working on horses.
1: But there is a chance that there could be a, some sort of connection to what your great-uncle learned out there, which then begs the question, and it, it's, we can throw this one out to the ether, but it begs the question, do you think that if tea touch has partially its origins in what you witnessed from your great-uncle, From what he learned in Russia from these Russian gypsies who were probably also of Cossack and Central Asian ancestry. Do you think that this way of touching horses could possibly go back to the origins of riding and training horses? Because we all know that it comes out of that area where Russia, Ukraine meets the sort of Black Sea, Caspian Sea that step there, the origin of the modern thoroughbred, we know that comes from there. Do you think that something in tea touch could possibly go back four thousand years to those first people learning how to
2: oh, I, I domesticate no, those
1: riding horses?
2: I have no question about it. I think it comes from the Mongols. I, can, I think it comes way before that because because of the when we get to that part of the story. Because what I brought in was a circular touch. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new in the universe. I just Pull that out of the quantum field, I'm sure. And when you hear the story of how it came, you think you'll think the same thing.
1: Okay. Okay, so but, there you yeah, are. You're riding yeah. horses in successfully in the Edmonton show. You're helping to prepare horses for clients. You've now, and you're, you've started this young horse and you found this ground driving, by the way, for those who are horsey, but don't use that term. That means long reining and long lining. And it's still the sort of accepted way you'd start a young horse, particularly in Ireland today, but it seems to have gone from a lot of other traditions, but it definitely, definitely works for allowing the horse to understand what they're going to do under saddle before they're put under saddle, which makes it safer for them and for the, for the rider. Okay. But so you've started this horse now and you, you, you've seen this way of touching a horse. Something is in you anyway, because you've been touching bear's ears since you were little. And now... You are basically at age twelve, thirteen, or so a professional in the horse world, albeit in Edmonton. How do you end up drifting south?
2: Okay, so at the Edmonton Horse Show for my fifteenth birthday, there is one of the, the premier classes of the whole week would be a, a jumper class. And you'd have to, you know, you have to qualify to keep jumping for the whole week. So on the the last day. A, a rider named Ray Edgington broke his arm, and he had one of the top horses named Bouncing Buster, and he was a 14-2-hand a quarter horse. And because I was known for catch riding, he asked me if I'd ride the horse. And I had about okay. 10 minutes to you know, get on and go over one little jump, and we won it. And there was a big article in the paper, which I have about that, still have. But anyway... Wentworth Tellington, who became my husband, was sitting next in the grandstands next to my mother. And you can imagine she went nuts when I, you know, you know how moms are. She was early when I won. So Wentworth managed to her into bringing him to the exhibitor party. And at the exhibitor party, he, you know, sallied up to me and said he'd like to buy that horse from me because the horse was for sale. And I said... You know, it's not worth the money they're asking. I'm not interested. Thank you very much. Well, he managed to get to my mother somehow. And, oh, oh, God, this is another whole long story. You love story. Should I tell you the story?
1: Please, please tell me the story.
2: Ah. So at the Calgary Horse Show, which had been the month before this show, I had just won the third leg of the Calgary Herald. Newspaper Challenge Cup. I won it three years in a row. And so, you know, we were, I was with a friend, we were walking around in the afternoon and I saw this cowboy, God, I'm sure all you women have been there or many of you have been, with a really big hat. And I was really interested in a big hat. <laughs> so he invited me to go out that night. So here I am a 15 year old sneaking out of the hotel.
1: This is not Wentworth. This is and somebody else?
2: Not Wentworth, but okay. it needs to Wentworth. This you'll is see free
1: wentworth it.
2: Well, you'll see how it brought okay. me to Got Wentworth. And so anyway, he wrote me a letter and asked me to marry him, for God's sake. I was 15. And my mother read the letter, I'm happy to say. Mm. <clears throat> and she didn't say anything to me. Oh, she did say something to me. Anyway, she invited him there. and this is not a guy I was interested in. Come on, I was 15. But so my mother thought she would get me out of town for the summer and get me away from this guy. And so went, invited me to work the horses. He was an engineer and he was going out for the summer with a magnetometer looking for oil anomalies that he sold to big oil companies.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: And so this is the cowboy. No, this is Wentworth, my it's mother. Wentworth,
1: okay, sorry. okay. It's
2: so my so mom get me away from the, co- that she thought I would be interested in this cowboy, which I wasn't, but she got me out with Wentworth. So anyway, I wound up eventually, three years later, marrying Wentworth Tellington when I was 18. And it's thanks to him that we had this wonderful school because of all his amazing classical education. And learning.
1: Okay, so tell me, yes, tell me about, tell us about Tellington. He's clearly a formative, formative person. He's half of your name. And you go on to start this amazing thing with him. He's also interested in, in the Rosicrucians. He's interested in herbs and healing. He's clearly a very fine horseman. He's got clearly a cavalry connection. Tell us, tell us about this man. And what, what was he doing up there in Calgary?
2: He wasn't in Calgary. That was where I met the cowboy that made my mother want to get me out of town in Edmonton. Okay. So- the cowboy, we can now let go. He was just an instrument to get me out in the woods with Wentworth.
1: <laughs> but hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm now, I now, I'm confused. I thought that you said that when you won the class and your mum went nuts, Wentworth was in the stands next to your mother. Yeah, wanted to buy the horse. Correct. Okay, but before that, there had been a cowboy. So your mum, your mum had invited this Tellington chap. Or he was still unknown to your mum at that point. Sorry. Totally unknown.
2: Yeah. Totally unknown. Okay. It was one of those, you know, accidents of the universe. No accident. There are no accidents.
1: Correct. And what was what was he doing up there? If he was he was he, a California based at that point, was he?
2: He no, he was an engineer.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah. Oil he and gas.
2: Oil and gas in Edmonton. Alberta yeah. Got Yeah. It, got it. Got it. it yes, that makes yeah.
1: sense. Okay. So then, okay, so you meet Wentworth, Wentworth, Wentworth wants to buy the horse, is showing no interest in you, but yet three years later, you marry the man. Well, well
2: wait happened? a minute, of course the horse was a, you know, a reason, mm-hmm. and so he wound up actually buying another horse for me that was a grandson of man of war and shipping it with a handler from the Maryland passing tipton sale and i have pictures riding this beautiful stallion it was a six-year-old stallion that had not been that successful in racing and he was we bought this horse and i did really well with him so it's just all this part of you know being able to get on horses and manage not to get in a fight with them mm-hmm. and one of the things i want to say to you Rupert, that The reason, like, I don't get on a horse if I'm afraid. Yeah. What makes it possible for me to connect to them is taking them in hand, even for a few minutes, and getting them to just to walk through the labyrinth, because it gives them boundaries. And we make a a connection there. And I describe this today. It's not, hey, I'm going to take a hold of you, you, better listen to me. It's not at all. It's really this heart-to-heart connection because people say to me, like, I work with many different zoo animal, exotic animals in zoos. Right. And they how do you know, how can you work with all these different species? Because I ask the person who knows them about them, and I connect with them at a cell-to-cell level. We're going to get that to the cell-to-cell in a little while, what okay. they're to do with all of us. Because at this level of the cells, we're all the same. Interesting.
1: Okay. So, but but at at that point in your life, you're you're not aware of this in a conscious way, presumably. You're you're somehow feeling it.
2: But I absolutely, you know, I made that connection with any horse. So before I get on them, I take them in hand, and walk them through. You walk and stop. And just put my hands on them, like you said. You feel mm-hmm. my hands on you. So, what's my message is in my hands, Sue? Is feel your perfection because we are miracles, as I said before. And every cell in the body. This is this is. We'll, we'll come to that in, in a little bit because I want to tell you how I got to this, where I am today. Because it's really interesting following, it's following like a trail of breadcrumbs cr- that I listened for and followed.
1: Okay, I'm listening. I'm, I'm actually just writing down and making a note here. I'm saying, Linda's message through her hands, feel your perfection. I love this.
2: Through my hands to the horse, to you, mm. to any being that I put my hands on. It's, it, and today, I only in the last six months, Finally understand really what that means at a, at a whole other level. And I've been searching for this all these years, like Rupert, you've seen what I could do with a horse that's upset, you know, afraid because all that excitement, it's all about fear when they lose it like that. Yeah. And so we, what we've discovered. With this one and a quarter basic tea touch, which I'll tell you in a bit how I came to that, because the story is really interesting, the the the, the breadcrumb trail, <laughs> I see see it. So this this I, I I'm going to take it in in its own order actually. So, okay. Okay. I I want to I want to on this track where you are right now.
1: You are now married to this man, Tellington. And he is American. He is not Canadian. He's okay. in oil and gas. He's up there. He's and in he then and, end up running a farm together down on down in California. Is right. he already but, there? Does he already own this farm? Do you start this together? What's the story?
2: Let me tell you how he got there. So in Edmonton, Wentworth had a lot of in, injuries from different accidents and a lot of bones that were aching. And so he decided that he First of all, he went to Reno, Nevada to get a divorce and then to sell a gold mine to Harold's Club. Not a gold mine, sorry, oil. One of the oil leases that he found. And then he decided he needed some warm weather to recuperate. So we went to Puerto Rico for a year and a half. for a year and a half, I was without horses. It's the only year and a half. Yikes. And so then after a year and a half, he decided... That he wanted to give something back to the world for all that he had through his wonderful education at Andover. So he applied to a private prep school in, in Rolling Hills, California, Chadwick School. It was a residential private prep school. And I thought I would be going there and be going to university. But the second day that we were on the property, because it's a place where we had to live, Mrs. Metherall, the head of the school, called Mrs. Chadwick, called me in and sat me down and said that I was going to be the senior girl's dorm mother and that I would teach eighth grade social studies. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is what a, a, in those days a private school could do. So I got the book that they were I was going to be teaching and I read through the book and I started teaching social studies. Okay. And
1: how old are you at this point? 20.
2: Yeah, about 20. Yeah. yeah. And I loved it. It was really incredible because in in a private school like that I had eight kids in my class and you know on the, when we were studying different countries we I could take them on field trips into Los Angeles and go to different restaurants that represented the food from the country. And
1: okay.
2: We were very creative.
1: So this is Southern California by Los Angeles.
2: That's right. But yes.
1: Where was just quickly, where was Tellington from originally? Was he was in East Coast no. or West Coast?
2: But, New Hampshire.
1: Okay. Okay. So this was a departure for him as well to go to the West Coast. Yes. Okay. And okay so now you're a social studies teacher.
2: I'm a social studies teacher and he's teaching math and and english and creative writing and i took his creative writing classes which oh i wish i had those pieces that i wrote then it was really wonderful and he what i learned from him writing rupert was so interesting whenever you're killing a story hang the gun gun on the wall if you're going to shoot someone you know let them know from the beginning in some way right
1: right right yeah leave it clear
2: Leave it clear. But I like the way he said that, hang the gun on the wall. that. <laughs> and so anyway, I was really excited about creative writing and was doing a lot of stuff at that time. And then in one of Ro- Wentworth's went- went- classes was a young man named R- Roland Klager,
1: uh-huh. uh-huh. who is
2: my current husband. <laughs> of
1: course he is. Okay. How do we get there?
2: 24 years. (laughs) Isn't that wild?
1: (laughs) It is. So, so sorry. So, your current husband was your pupil or was a co teacher or was someone? No,
2: he was, he was, he's three years younger than I am. He was in the senior class and he had a football injury and so he couldn't play anymore. And so he wanted to learn to ride. And one, one of his friend's father had a big ranch and so. They sent a horse up, to. The, there was a stable at the, at the private prep school I, I, and I had horses there and was giving lessons and, and buying horses and selling them and training.
1: So you're back into riding at this school. They have horses there.
2: Right. That was my-
1: okay, and you, you are teaching a riding or horsemanship class or it's purely recreational at this point? Someone else is running that program.
2: No, th- I, there, there was no program for the school itself. It was just private students.
1: Okay, could bring their horses.
2: Could bring their horse in. Got it. Yeah. And so I taught Roland to ride. <laughs> <laughs> and those of you, you know, he is just an incredible human being. I'm so blessed. And the fact that, that when, when we left the school and Roland got married to his first wife, we sent him a wedding present, which his first wife is said to still have.
1: Okay. What was the present? Do you know? Do you remember?
2: It was the double-headed axe because they were pioneering in Northern British Columbia and they ended to chop wood, believe it or not, you know, and yeah.
1: That's funny. So you, you give a newly married couple a double-headed axe so they can each take a swing.
2: <laughs> the double-headed, I, I don't know why. Hilarious.
1: Okay. So, so presumably you getting married to Roland happens sometime later. What? Well, so how long, you, how long do you remain married to, to Huntington? And given that you create this, this rather cutting edge riding Academy, what, what becomes of all that?
2: So it was 16 years I was okay. married and it's kind of an interesting story. It's too long to tell here. It's quite fascinating actually. Okay. But we split it on amenable terms. We never had a lawyer. We just, I bought him out and kept the school and the name and all the equipment and all the horses. And I continued to run it with, I had really good riding teachers who had gone to our school and were really excellent. And I also had Wentworth's son, Jay, was there helping me. And... Interestingly enough, Roland and his family were there helping okay. went to develop a program. So, 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 but after I ran the school, maybe, I don't know, a few months, you see, I also had in training like many horses from Countess Margaret Bethany. That's your story in this book. It's her story. Amazing story. And who was she? She was a Hungarian countess who, who's, Grandfather was Marcus Daly, and he owned this huge bitterroot ranch in 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 Montana. Okay, which she inherited, and she was a wonderful horsewoman. And she had seen our articles because we had articles in Western Horsemen called "Let's Go." We had the monthly columns, and so she would be reading our columns, and then called us and asked if she could come to visit. And she brought a couple of her horses down and wanted me to work with them, which I did. And I wound up having usually ten of her horses, and I took them not in training for two months, but for two years. And we campaigned them. So and she was in, in um,
1: what discipline? Did she? Were they in all disciplines?
2: With me, they were in endurance riding, jumping, and three-day eventing. Okay. Yep. So, and you'll see that in some of my books and it's so interesting you know when you when i had that astrological reading thing that my work would spread around the world behind me on this bookshelf i have books my books in 22 books in 16 languages <laughs> so from that point it really has spread thanks to my publishers
1: amazing absolutely amazing so 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 okay you're running this writing for your creative writing workshops of Clearly paid off because you're now publishing articles about what you're doing in Western Horseman magazine and so on. People are taking notice of this to the point that they want to come check out your school, bring their horses to you, you're training horses for aristocrats, you're you're training these these people who're gonna go on to be very well known in the horse business. Why not just stay with that for the rest of your life? Why go on into the healing arts and Boy, that's, that's careers a, like quite, you did?
2: Really good question. So Interesting story, because I know you love the nitty-gritty, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened with our school at Badger is we had wonderful connections with different organizations, and one of them was Prescott College in Prescott, Arizona, and I was asked to go and do – I can't remember how this happened. I must have met the director of Outward Bound, and so I was asked to go and give a workshop to students about endurance riding and what it takes to, you know, go into another discipline. And so after that class, we invited the head of the Outward Brown, Roy Smith, and eight of the students to come for a weekend to us and learn to ride in a weekend, jumping and riding in a the weekend, these athletes. And that's what we could do in our school, Rupert, because it was a logical way of specifically riding in balance. So it was easy for these athletes to do. And
1: I presume you were putting them on schoolmaster horses that were not going to kill them. Yeah,
2: we have really great horses. That's a whole other thing in this book. I was we just translated this to German, and one of the reasons that our our horses were so good. Is the fact that I never allowed a person to ride a horse unless they liked the horse, and if they didn't like that horse, they would not get on them because horses know when you don't like them, and they want to work for you if you do like them. Mm. It makes a huge, huge difference.
1: Okay, so you you're, you've got so this incredible came, program came, going, and pre- you've got these athletes coming from Prescott College,
2: right? And now I'm trying to forget. Oh, yeah. So, oh my God. Okay. This. So, we had this group of students there. We're sitting at the dining room table, and we have people learn in the class. They learn to be a hostess and help people. And so, we were serving dessert. And the dessert that was brought out to to my table, I have many, like four or five different tables of students. Our table were, were peaches for dessert. And my, and Wentworth said, I ordered pears, and he got up and stomped into the kitchen, and I thought, oh, oh." (laughs) and he came back out, and he said, well, she may quit, and I said quietly, I wouldn't blame her, and you have to understand, Rupert, I had never in my all 16 years with him never dared to open my mouth to oppose him, because he was Very violent.
1: Okay, so there was a light side and a dark side to this man.
2: There was a dark side due to, I think, alcohol. Yes, Mm. and so I don't know. You know, it was, it was, it was meant to be that I said that, and he said to me, "Step outside," and I said, "Okay." So I walked out, and thank God there was a solid door, so people couldn't see what happened. So he stood in front of me, and I'm telling this because some of you may have had. Experiences that were really terrible, and you've lived through them, which I did. So he said, Say that again. And I said, I wouldn't blame her if she quit. And he punched me and knocked me down. How much and,
1: bigger than you was he?
2: Oh, he was only five eight but he was on the boxing team at, you know, in his prep so, school.
1: Yeah, he must have known the damage he could do. What, what, uh, what possessed him, do you think? I mean, what, what do yeah. you think? Any, do you think anything went through his mind thinking, Oh, what, what if I, what if I accidentally kill her? I'm a, boxer. Would... I'm a trained boxer.
2: No, no, he wouldn't think that. You know, this is something that happens, I think, to people. here. Anyway.
1: He lost his rational mind.
2: What I want, what I want you to tell you about it that's so interesting is that did you ever, do you remember those years we used to, there used to be a little glass and there was that something called the dodo bird and you, the dodo bird, if you tipped yeah. it down, tipped right back up. What came in my mind, I just jumped up and stood in front of like a dodo bird. I didn't cry. I didn't feel anything. And he said, say that again. And I did. And he punched me again. And when I stood up and just looked at him, I didn't say anything. Or I just stood and looked at him. And he said, I think we better go. I think we better talk. And I said, yes, I think we better. So we went for a walk. And I I told him some of the ridiculous things that he had done, which it's way too long a story for that, about, again, punching out our lawyer. And you know he couldn't think, and this is a—that's the dark side of him. Mm -hmm. The bright side is I wouldn't be sitting here with you without if I hadn't been with him those years. Right. And the big one of the biggest things I learned, Robert, that Mm -hmm. has made a huge difference to my life is if I don't know something, I say, "Oh, interesting, I don't know that." Instead of trying to fake that you know something if a student asks you a question. Mm -hmm. And other thing is to share information. Because in the horse world, you know, all the trainers had their secrets. And that's what our syndicated column was about, sharing secrets of how we managed to get along with horses in this way without, with safety, without getting hurt, with appreciation, you know, with a smile. And for that, I honor this man. So the punch out. Okay.
1: It was light to his dark, dark to his light. Yeah, I mean, but but then he punches you out like this. You can't come back from that. At that point, do you leave? No, no, no,
2: no. That wasn't it. That wasn't. We we went for a walk, and then he said, "I think you need time to think," and so he said, "I'm going to go." We had an apartment in San Francisco that we would sometimes go to on weekends, and he said, "I think I'm going to go to the apartment and let you think about this." So he did, and I was so relieved when he walked out the door, and. The big thing that I can be here and sit and talk to you like this is that I completely forgive him, and I I can understand how such an intelligent person is what we're telling him. He was running a school for mostly women. We had a few men, but not many, and And certainly no one of his intellectual level to, to talk, to talk with. What a terrible thing. So after three o'clock each day, he would never sign anything. He would never agree to anything after three o'clock because that's when, you know, he'd start drinking these glasses of whiskey. So big gift here for me is forgiveness of myself, whatever role I played. And for, for what that I take, you know, responsibility for that.
1: So then you, you go off to the apartment in San Francisco. You have a think.
2: No, he goes Sorry, off. He
1: goes off. You're on the ranch. He's relieved he's gone out of the door.
2: Uh, Very relieved. Does and he come so, back
1: at the end of the weekend saying perhaps we should get divorced? Do you say that? or
2: No, no. What happened was every morning I would have a, like a 30 to 50 minute talk with Countess Bessigné about the different horses and how they were doing. And she knew this going on with Wendt. She knew how he was. Mm-hmm. And so she said, Linda, why don't you get a divorce? It never crossed my mind, Rupert. Okay. Never, ever crossed my mind. You just didn't do that in those days.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I said, oh. And so I remember calling my mother in horror, thinking, what is she going to say? And when I told her, she said, Oh dear, thank God, finally, because she had never said anything ever about, she just, she never talked about people. She wasn't a gossip. And so that was how that, so we, uh, and then so I told him that, and they said he knew at some point, you know, he being 20 years old, that that would happen. And, you know, so we just worked it out.
1: Okay. Okay. So so, so he he didn't, he didn't then become violent again or anything like that.
2: Not at all. Hmm. No, because he wasn't drinking.
1: Okay. And, and but you he, must have still been around him when he was drinking a bit after that. So what what prevented him from
2: he, he didn't come back. We made it from a distance.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah. And then what happened, how I then got it then Countess Bethany said, Linda, it's too much work for you. Why don't you just close the school, sell your school horses? And okay. and find a place where that you really like, near San Francisco, because I was a member of the Los Altos Front Club, and we were there. And, and so, I and then you, it's a much better place to promote my horses from there. So, we found a beautiful place, and that's what I did. I moved over, and I had a huge fancy tipped in, a very fancy sale, and sold all our school horses to a really good school that one of our students actually went on and knew the horses and was the teacher there. Okay. So, and it's in the book, some of how our students went on to be successful.
1: So that now you're running a new place, you're a solo act. Yes. It's still a long way from t Well, no, but, but hold,
2: on. hold on, I forgot. There is another thing. Okay. I had a relationship with a student and Margaret was much younger, 11 years younger, and Mar- and he played polo, and and Margaret said, why don't you marry him? He can be your consort. You can't be in the horse business in 1970 without a husband. You can't be, you, can't be, you know, it wasn't allowed <laughs> in the Hun Club or any of those clubs, so I married him, and that's a whole other story that lasted two and a half years, and we had a a happy disconnect at that point and he went off with ex-girlfriend who was working for me at the time and i was so happy you cannot believe it but i couldn't tell her that of course <laughs> thank you very much this is a nice shift okay. then so i had i had and how that happened i had the school it was really a really beautiful school over in in Los Altos Hills. We had rented a house next to us that had six bedrooms and a pool.
1: Los Altos Hills that is now Silicon Valley.
2: Basically. No, Silicon Valley. Well, yeah, I guess that's part of it, perhaps. Yeah, as part, sort of right. what
1: it's now. Yeah. Okay. But different back then. Okay. So you've got this wonderful place.
2: And we, were, we did a lot of showing with our horses and we had students from all over again, but I only took students for six months of that point, Okay. And then I got the feeling, wait a minute, Rupert, I was so disillusioned of what was going on in the horse world because it was no better than before. There was no more mm-hmm. in like recognition of the horse's heart, right. of their feelings. It was just yeah. the same old dominant thing that was going on. Yeah. And yeah.
1: so I- Yeah.
2: I decided that I had to go around the world and find out what I was supposed to do. Okay. And so I was invited, it, I started in Germany to visit Mark, Ursula Bruins, who is responsible for my first book. She's the one who sat me down and said, Linda, you have to start, you have to make a method of this work. And it, thanks to her, I have my first of these 22 books now. So anyway, I went to visit her, and she said, you have to give a presentation for Aquitana. And I was planning to continue around the world to go spend some time with a student in Africa who was filming gorillas. But anyway, I didn't get there. I stayed in Germany, and then I developed this, this whole system, and thanks to Ursula Bruins, with her camera, and setting me down at the old standard, wasn't a typewriter, it was I forget what you call it. it was in between the typewriter and the computer. Um,
1: so you had been using this way to of empathetic touch with horses through this whole successful career in California. Yeah. And now there you are, you've come to Germany thinking, oh, I'm gonna be a student again. I, I need to need to find out more But now someone's looking at you going, and oh, no no no, you're the one who's gotta be the teacher or uh, is that I, how it played out?
2: How it played out, first of all, I wanted to learn because I'd been teaching so much in my life. And so when I, I got there, and I Ursula Bruin said, You have to make this performance, this presentation for Equitana. And it was that year there were 136,000 people who visited Equitana over those nine days. And so I took my partner at the time, Roger Russell, and for Three, two other young men and four horses and we trained them to do a quadrille for jumping with no bridles and it was a sensation of Equitana. It was in all the magazines and what the magazines wrote is oh my gosh, so many people are going to be killed. You know, this is such a terrible idea and now this last time you have seen in every discipline an Equitana across the board Board, English, Western Dressage.
1: Yeah.
2: Everybody's riding with nothing on their horse's head.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Because
2: it's the truss. So I want I want to get out of this long story and take you to the story of how T-Touch developed. Okay. So I'm I'm in Germany after Equitana. I'm asked to teach a riding class because they wanted to know how I did this stuff, right? So we sent up a class, and the advertisement, you had to either be an adult rider with fear from accidents, but an experienced rider, or you had to have a horse who's fearful. And so my organizer said, you don't need a translator. Every German speaks English. Not true, as you may have found out. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So I went in there, and I got there, and not one person spoke one word of English. So I, growing up in Canada, had had four years of French. And Latin. And so I knew how to conjugate. So I just wrote down 10 words I needed for teaching. And I thought, this is great. This is really fun. So I started using those words. And we had an amazing time on that weekend. And so the Ursula Bruns, who had organized that and had already sold books with three-quarters of a million readers, everybody knew her. She was an amazing human being. And she's the one who took me under her wing and said, you have to make a method when she saw what I was doing. And so my partner who was with me, traveling with me, Roger Russell, he, I was asked to form this riding school that would be set up by these, you know, really organized Germans, and I would be the teacher. And Roger wanted to have something to teach, and he we had been doing the Feldenkrais work one time, one lesson at Esalen Institute the year before, and it had made such a difference to the movement, my movement as a rider, because in the classical way of getting into riding, you ride in one position, depending on your discipline, right? Mm-hmm. So this gave me the movement in my pelvis, thanks to this Feldenkrais awareness or movement like I had maybe had, and it was incredible. So... Roger decided he wanted to bring that and implement it in the writing that we were doing. So he signed up for a class in San Francisco, and I took one look at the brochure because it was Dr. Moshe Feldenkrais from Israel teaching at the Humanistic Psychology Institute in San Francisco, and it was to be a three-year course, which turned out to be actually full four years because he felt we weren't ready. So I took one look at it and I said, I, I know I have to do this for my students. Never crossed my mind, Rupert, that it would make such a difference for me or for the work. And so I it was a 12-week course, four days a week from 10 till 4. And then all year you did this studying and moving and practicing. And so the second day in the class, we're lying on the floor and he is... He's making a statement, Dr. Moshe Beldenkrais, made the statement that it's possible for a human to learn in one experience using these gentle, non-habitual movements that activate new neural pathways to the brain that give us more potential for learning. And I'm lying on the floor doing these movements he's leading us through, and I felt my, my ears prick up like a horse, and I thought, wait a minute, if this is true for a human, it's got to be true for a horse. So, I after class that day, I called a man I had just met who had brought a group of Arabian th- broodmares down from Montana, and I had been interested in buying one of them. And so I called him and I said, "Do you have any of the horses that have any issue that habit that you'd like to be changed?" And he said, "Well, I have this one horse that every day to catch her to bring her into the stable for her food." you know, for the night, I had to chase her. It's not logical. So he chased her up and brought her to me. I, I came out after class and I did about 30 minutes of what I call exploring. And we had already, I want to show you this, two books here. He had already written.
1: This is Beldenkrais.
2: No, this is just a booklet.
1: that oh, You had written that you guys had put out.
2: Yes, 15 years before, we wrote this booklet called Physical Therapy for the Athletic Horse okay. using its gypsy movements
1: uh, okay. to
2: help our horses recover after hard athletic endeavor. and But it never crossed my mind that you could change the habit of a horse or change their behavior. And so I started working on this horse as we had done you know, moving the legs and diff, moving different parts of the body in ways that horses would not move themselves. And,
1: okay, novel movement. In, but yes,
2: with a new thought, and the new thought was, wait a minute, what are the neural pathways that will be activated because I'm moving this with awareness in a way that this horse could not do it herself. And so I moved the legs with that in mind. What are the neural connections that are happening? Will this horse be able to learn new behaviors? So I was simply what I call exploring, Rupert. And so I did this thing, and people watched me, and they thought I'd hypnotized the horse. She was so quiet. This is a horse that had never been ridden. So I, I moved her head in different ways and took her ears and her legs and her tail. And then he, I went home. and didn't think anymore, and he turned her loose. And he called me the next day and he said, you won't believe this. When I went to catch her to put her back in the stable, she came to the gate. And when I put her in the stall, instead of diving for the food, she stood there next to me like, do something. And I thought, holy mackerel, okay. Now, how did I get to where I am here today? The next level of this is this book. So at the end of the first summer in San Francisco at the Humanistic Psychology Institute, Dr. Moshe Feldenkrais recommended this book. It's called Man on His Nature by Sir Charles Sherrington. Sherrington was a Nobel Prize winner who, who won the Nobel Prize for the talking about photons, a light in the cells. And when I read that book, I was sitting in Marvin Pick restaurant in Stuttgart, Germany in a February, Cold, rainy day, reading this book, and Doctor uh, Charles Sherrington made the statement that the that, that the every cell in the body knows its function in the body, and he told the story in such mm-hmm. fascinating description of how if we cut ourselves, talking about how the how the cell how the body knows which fluids to send to that for healing. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, if every cell in the body knows its function in this body, then all I have to do, if I am working on a horse or a person who has a problem, all I have to do is they cells, remind this body, remind these cells of their potential for ideal function. And it's just a thought that I had. And so I, I would have that thought and what i found is wow i could this is way before the circle i could really make a difference in how a horse felt and how they behaved by just having this sense of giving new information in the body by these gentle movements and the next level so i was very successful with this and we found that we could really change behavior and one of the stories you might appreciate And you've got to jump in and stop me because once I get on a roll with this, I just, it's so, it takes me back to those days. So we're looking for other horses to try this theory on, right? So another day I go out to a polo barn, belong to a polo player I knew. And he had also school horses and he had one horse, another older mare, that he played pole one, but they couldn't use her in the jumping program for students because she would not step over a line in the sand. So, of course, she wouldn't jump a pole or step over a pole. So, I'm kind of scratching my head and thinking, mm, interesting. So, we're standing out in the arena and there are a bunch of poles lying around because it was a jumping arena. And I'm at her tail. And Roger, my partner at the time, is today my good friend always. He was at her head, and I was doing something with her tail. And suddenly, this horse was standing here with her head up. She just dropped her head and walked forward over a pole. I thought, holy mackerel. (laughs) That's interesting. So we drew some lines in the fan, first of all, just with our foot. And I would work her tail, and he could lower her head, and she'd step over it. And then we got her working over a pole. And Rupert, my God, when I think about the re- relationship of the tail and the cranial sacral fluid that we understand today, mm-hmm. you know, and the ears with all of that, it's fascinating. Okay, so another discovery. So we started working with the different, continuing to work on different parts of the body and was very successful. My whole next book that's still in print. With the introduction to the work was 20, 20 horses for four weeks that we took them. Horses with big, big problems like runaways or really dangerous, spook, spooky horses. And so the next miracle that happened in my life, this was, I was giving a workshop at the Delaware Equine Veterinary Clinic. And Matthew McKay-Smith, did you ever meet Matthew? I
1: did. I actually met, I knew the McKay-Smiths because I worked in Middleburg, Virginia for my first ever horse training job in America when I was very, very young, 500 years ago. And um, I I knew them and I knew they they were the top people for producing endurance horses at that time, as well as all sorts of other disciplines. Yeah. And Dr. McKay-Smith was the go-to guru, absolutely, as as a vet too.
2: Well, he and his wife were really good friends, and I knew him from the time he was almost out of vet school. (laughs) And he was a veterinary editor for Equus Magazine for years.
1: I remember that, yes.
2: Yep. And he loved what I did, and his mother had a bunch of, I can't remember the breed right now, one of the Connemara Ponies, I think she bred. And I remember him wanting to tube one of them, and he wanted me to work with his horse to try it because... The horse was really wild and basically unhandled and he hadn't been able to tube her. So what I did was do some of the work we do. And then I took the nostrils and I just moved the nostrils in all different directions, you know, with and around the mouth. That's how all of that really was influenced. And then he could put a tube up her nose just like that.
1: And by the way, again, for those listeners who don't know what you (laughs) would put a tube up a horse's nose. You do it to save a horse's life. When a horse is colicking and the colon is impacted, the horse can die very quickly. And one way you can help with this is to put oil through the through the digestive canal. You don't do it through the mouth. You do it through the nose. And it's called intubating. And if you can't intubate the horse in crisis, you may well, may very well lose the horse. So it's, it's quite crucial. And some horses accept it, no problem. They just sort of stand there. Other horses, clearly not. So this is really interesting because I've seen one, one of my first exposures to your work, Linda, was you remember when you were in Texas with us and we had our three stallions and you were showing us how to put our our fingers inside the mouth and massage the gums and so on so, and was, so on. had said, oh, stick your finger in the stallion's mouth. I'm like, well, if Linda's telling me to do it, it must be good. So we did. And we found indeed our horses are all became little puppies so uh, that's very interesting that uh, i guess necessity is always the mother of invention right how else would one discover something like this but in some sort of crisis where you've got to draw upon what the resources of what you've learned and see what works that's interesting
2: well actually the way i came about it is a longer trip and i'm sorry to go on so long but it's no no
1: it's fascinating as long as you want
2: so that with with Dr. McKay Smith and the nostrils, that was that came as a result of a lecture that I had in my advanced training of the feldicrais work we had. We had a neurologist, an Israeli neurologist talking to us about watching the mouth movements of a newborn infant, a human, and that if they were abnormal, there was some dysfunction neurologically. And so like two weeks after I was in San Francisco having that lecture, I was back in Germany working with a horse that someone had sent to me for a week. They wanted to know if I could work with her to make her friendlier because she didn't like to be caught and she, she wasn't particularly friendly. So, and she was really hard to bridle. So what I noticed that her mouth was really tight. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll just play around. You know, this thing I call exploring, this is before the circles. I play around with her mouth and her chin. And now today we do circles on it. But that's what we did then. And I found out, and I put my mouth, my fingers up here, up on the gums, right? And I found out that in a very short time, she would relax. And then I could, was able to open the mouth and get her to open her teeth and bridle her. And her attitude really changed. And then I started talking about that and teaching it. And then I found another book that's here on my shelf. And it's called Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. And in the second, it's about humans. And in the second chapter, he talks about the fact that around the mouth and the nose, our taste and the smell affect our, our brain in a way that overcomes fear that it affects the emotional centers of our brain.
1: Makes so, perfect sense since we were infants, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. All this fucking stuff, you know, that we do to, mm-hmm. to self-soothe.
1: It. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: So that's how I got there. And with the, the nostrils, it was, it was just, I don't know how I went. Man, I can't remember the first time I did the nostrils, but maybe after reading that chapter that it wasn't just the mouth that was the nostrils also. So as a result of that, Robert, that Matthew McKay-Smith was fascinated, but he always said it was me. You know, it wasn't the method because he hadn't seen my students be able to do the same thing. And so he, did you ever meet Dr. Dan, Daniel Dan, Dan Daniel Marks?
1: No, I did not.
2: Well, he was the friend of Matthew McKay-Smith and he was the the vet for the American jumping team. Okay. And he had also seen me work because I had done I had gone with them to work on a horse at the King Ranch. And so they invited me to do a workshop at their center. And they had a bunch of the three-day adventures and different people come in and I worked with their horses showing them how they could improve performance with the work the work. And so one of the horses belonged to one of the other vets and they didn't know what was wrong with her. Because in those days, all you did was measure from the knee, I mean, x-ray from the knees and the hocks down. For those of you not in the horse world today, veterinarians look at every aspect of the horse with the back, the hips, the neck, none of that with the jaws are x-rayed and they have ultrasound, they have everything we humans have. It was not available then. So they wanted me to put my hands on this horse and figure out why was she so aggressive like she'd pin her ears and snap her teeth and move threatened to kick when you just approached her with a grooming thing or with a saddle and so i just went up to her quietly like this and just put my hands on her rib area and I didn't recognize what I was doing in those days. Today, what I absolutely know, Rupert, is I'm just giving her this message, feel yourself. And I see the horse not as aggressive or not as a problem, but just feel yourself, feel. And today, all I have to do is add to that. You're a miracle. I mean, we are miracles, okay? And the horse got really quiet. She didn't pin her ears. She didn't move aside. And the her the wife of her of her owner said, Linda, what are you doing? Why is my horse not aggressive? Why does she not try to, you know, bite you or kick you? And I said intuitively, and now we get back to this word, intuition. You must learn to trust your intuition. Intuitively, I said, don't worry what I'm doing. Just walk up, put your hands on the shoulder and move the skin in a circle. I didn't say a circle and a quarter in those days. That came way later. Move the skin in a circle. And when I said that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't know what that's about. So I didn't tell her I didn't know what I was talking about. So she went up and she just gently pushed the skin, not with a, just lightly push skin in a circle. And the horse let her do this, like all over her rib cage, didn't move to the side, didn't pin her ears, didn't like threaten to bite. And she said she couldn't believe it. And when I saw that, I couldn't believe it either. And I thought, wait a minute. It takes years to learn this beautiful Feldenkrais method. Anybody can move the skin in a circle. And that's when I started following the circles. And that' what we do today. And for years now, for humans and horses and dogs, we can relieve fear or pain, reduce pain, just with this, what we now know is a one and a quarter circle. And it's taken years to come to that. This is a long story, as you can see, with a lot of influence from a lot of people.
1: So when I first was exposed to your method, I remember wondering why circle in a quarter. So for those listeners who aren't familiar, and hopefully there's lots of you because then you can all have the treat of learning tea touch because it works for people too. It basically the, the, the basic pattern which gets communicated when you're a rookie is there is this way of moving the skin gently in a pattern that is basically a circle and a quarter, not a lot of pressure, but not too little pressure, but it's a circle and a quarter and the quarter, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, the 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 quarter circle at the end that you end with seems usually to, if I'm not wrong, to be an upstroke. Is that correct? Correct. And I've been using it. Thank God I just checked. <laughs> but it it works it works on my horses it works on my dogs it works on my kids it works on me the moment you linda showed this to us because we were also running a large facility with horses trained at a very high level with lots of clients coming in from all over the world and a lot of pressure on us to you know have horses that would show up in a good mood to do what they needed to do and so we were always obviously interested in anything anything we could learn to make it nicer for our horses and we still are. So I remember when you first showed up Linda and you showed us this and I remember thinking, ah, yes, like all genius things, it's something simple. But one of these days I'm going to get to ask you when there's not a million of your students around and other people, and I haven't got my hands on a horse and I'm trying to figure out what to do. What's the quarter bit? Why the circle and the quarter? This is
2: where I wish we, we, we had the- I can draw it here. You see, I first said, push the skin in a circle. Mm -hmm. And then I I changed the push because it can, it's like move it in a circle. Sometimes it's feather light, so you can't push, right? So move it in a circle. And then I realized if you do it, all of you watching this, if if you just imagine a circle here and catch the skin, and actually, I'm going to give you, I'm going to have you imagine up there on the wall, there's a clock, you know, the kind that we used to have in schools where you had numbers, not not this digital things, but where you've got a round thing like I have above me and you have the numbers on it. So there's a reason for doing this and you'll see it in a moment. So I imagine taking that clock and I put it here on my chest, which is to be your heart chakra Mm -hmm. right here and and i put imaginary numbers on it i put six toward the ground and i put up here i put my toward my right shoulder i put my nine just imagine from the outside 12 up towards the chin and three towards the left shoulder now there's a real purpose that i say that direction and now i'm going to make a tiny circle, so you can see how actually small it is, and it's not this big thing. If so I put one hand over the other, I move from six with a big press, try it six up to your nine, and I do it lightly don't press hard just enough to catch the skin and move it so it can be I'm using the heel of my hand there there and I go, six, nine, twelve, three, six. Up to nine, and I stop, and I just release. I just did it. Try uh, the, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so let,
1: let's just get let's just get the the listeners to do it. So if you're if you're driving a car right now, uh-huh. of you will be, you're going to need two hands. So if you're not on the freeway, pull over because this is worth a shot. It does work. Okay, so we got to just give people a chance to pull over. Da-da-da. They're looking in their rearview mirrors and around. Yeah, oh, can I park the car here? Okay. Put the car in park or slide it into gear, engine off or running park. Okay. Now I think they're ready. Tell us now. We're all going to do it together, Linda.
2: Okay. So we take this imaginary clock and we place it there. as so though we're looking at it from the outside.
1: So, so this is over our heart on the, more or less the left side of our chest.
2: Actually, let's go in the middle in the heart. Okay so, shot.
1: okay. so we're right in the middle of our chest. Yep. Yep. Okay. And, and two hands. One hand over there. Does it matter which hand is in contact with the body left?
2: Whatever you like. That is natural. And and the reason you do both, I started calling this a tea touch heart hug when I was teaching this to orphans in Sueto. Because it's like a hug, you know, for those who are orphans. Or it's like a hug to protect yourself. So one hand, you start... At 6, however, just like make a little connection. Oh, yeah, there's a 6, 9, up to 12. Deep breath around to 6 and up and stop at, at, your, uh, at your 9 o'clock. Now, you did that once in that clockwise direction. Let's try it and see how it is for you in the other direction. Start at your imaginary 6 and go up to the left, up to the 3, 12, Nine, six, and back up to the three. Now if you just now start from six and go to six. How does that feel? And then go to the other direction, do six to the right and just around to six. Does it make you hold your breath?
1: <clears throat> I I inhaled through my nose on as I as my hands went up. From six to twelve, and I exhaled as my hands went down back to six again. However, I would posit that I need to do that because I've been looking at you in the camera, and I watch you do it. So I don't know if I would have. I might have held my breath. Hold on.
2: It's okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because actually, if you take a deep breath, it's true that I just did that. Now I just did a six to six, and I took a deep breath, and I. It took me. All the way from six to six to make that inhale. So yes, I've been he- holding my breath now at, at, back at six.
2: So, so the reason that I'm, I'm just telling you because we normally what I what I didn't say like I breathe in through my nose as you mentioned before,
1: mm. and out, out through the mouth.
2: Yeah, and so there's a reason for all of this out through the nose activates the nitric oxide. Oxide. So uh. yeah. So now. When What I found is, wait a minute, it didn't feel finished at 6 to 6. So then we started, what happens if I go a little beyond 6? That's how, in the first days in my first books, it was just a little beyond 6, so it went to about 8 o'clock. And then, what changed that years later of doing this very successfully and publishing several books, a young man who's a savant came into one of our classes in Germany, a weekend class for self-help and he said you know that basic circle of the and a little more that you're doing if you just go to circle on a quarter that's that golden cut or golden spiral that's in all of nature and
1: the fractal pattern yes
2: and so the thing that was so interesting with that is that it's five. We, we've now discovered it's five degrees short of one and a quarter. That is in our DNA. It actually can affect our DNA. It is in all of nature. It's everywhere. It's mm,
1: mm, mm. Right. This. It's the pattern of three, six, and nine, which is Tesla's key to the universe, right? That all right. numbers are everything in creation that's creative is three, yeah. three, six, or nine somehow. Interesting.
2: Oh, now what I... Oh, this is, so um, when, so I started already because it's so hard when we went to computers and writing so much, it's hard to write, go to six and a little beyond. Mm -hmm. So I started saying six and a quarter. I'd been writing that for some time. Oh yeah, it's just natural to start to stop at that quarter. Now what it does, I I sort of got off of a minute. Try it a few times. If you have these looping thoughts and you can't focus, just do a few of these one in a quarter circle.
1: So while, while people have still got their cars stopped yes. so and drove off again, now you've got to pull over again. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so pull over again and let's do what should, can you guide us through yes. three of uh-huh. these perhaps? Would you think so that's good?
2: Yes. Okay. Six so,
1: in through so, so, so hold on. So So two hands in the center of the heart. One yeah. hand in connection with through one's t-shirt to one skin. Okay. Yes. In through the nostrils.
2: And one in and around the face of the pocket, out through your purse lips and back up to the quarter and stop. Take another, breath. just release your hands a little bit take another deep breath and do this in the direction that you prefer and like, and think of now As you go the last time around, think of something for which you're very grateful. Something that makes you feel really good. And stop. And what that does from the studies that we've been doing for years, you can be having these looping thoughts that you can't stop. Or you're agitated. Something's really bugging you and you can't slow down. (laughs) Do this one and a quarter. Smile because that activates your serotonin. Yeah, Just the stretching of your lips. That's your feel good hormone.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: And light contact has been shown in a two thousand person study by the American Massage Association. It's been the light contact, not deep pressure, activates the most trust hormone. The what?
1: Oxytocin. Yeah.
2: Oxytocin, exactly. And so just the light, and it doesn't have to be on your heart. The reason we started calling it a heart hug was when I taught it to these orphans who are alone, living alone, often getting only a lunch meal. And we were there during the serving of the lunch meal to teach them this. So when they're afraid, you can do this Mm -hmm. stuff. Or, Or how many of you get the things where you have the same few words go over and over around through your head and you can't stop it, right? That will stop it. Like Now, why is it important, Rupert? I want to give you this. What the heck? Why is that useful to us? Because I imagine the face of the, this clock here. Anytime I imagine anything, that activates my right brain. And when I put the numbers on or I have a method, that's why I say, toward the shoulder, toward the chin. That's a method that we do. And when we have those methods, that activates our logical part of the brain. And we can't be here together without that logic.
1: The left side of the brain.
2: Right. On the left side of the brain. So Um, what you're
1: talking then about is is hemispheric coherence. Um, Both sides of the brain to coherence instead of one taking over from the other. Yeah.
2: And I mean, the logic is so important. But the right brain is, this is what I believe makes us human because it's responsible for our creativity, Mm -hmm. for our feeling. And during COVID, I mean, so this feeling deficit syndrome was recognized that we don't feel, so many people don't feel anymore. And so when you do this hard hug and give thanks, give gratitude for the fact that you can do it or even that you can imagine it, And it activates that whole that is the intuition, the compassion that we have for others, for ourselves, for the planet, for our animals, creativity, feeling. So that's why we do it. That's part of. And before you, if you're working with an animal, a dog or a horse, if you do this before you go to do some exercise you want to do with them. That puts you in heart coherence. It gives you the acti- activity of the forebrain so you can actually think and feel and heal. And instead of being under the control of the amygdala, the emotional part of our brain,
1: mm. which,
2: you know, is where we have our our fear.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The, the, we can't, for, for, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with that, the amygdala named after, An almond in Greek, because it's shaped like an almond, is the part of the brain that governs fight, flight, and freeze, and signals to the body to produce cortisol, which is the stress hormone, as well as adrenaline, so that you act, you don't think when there's a threat. But the problem is cortisol is a neurotoxin, and it cuts momentarily the cord between the back part of the brain and the forebrain, the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is what gives us logic, reason, but also emotional regulation. So figuring shit out and handling your shit, which are jolly useful survival tools, right? So what you've done, I think, Linda, there has given us a way when we're in our funk, when we're in our dysfunctional funk, not when we're in the George Clinton having fun type of funk, Right? the the dysfunction, a way back to brain coherence through serotonin and oxytocin that is pretty much instantaneous. I can attest to this, you know, whenever I've tried it on myself, I'd say that I can get from the dysfunk back to the we want the funk type funk in approximately five to 15 seconds. Sometimes it might take me three to six repetitions, or sometimes it might happen right away. But it's very interesting that your circle and a quarter, your circle and a bit, there's so many, as you say, the golden ratio, pie is like that. It's, you know, something and a bit all these irrational numbers that seem to sequence and have effects on our DNA and get get repeated all through we see it at every level in in in, in cosmology we see it we see it everywhere and there you are stumbling into it from having been an eleven month old girl in yellow night with her hand on a bear's ear instinctively but And seeing your great uncle, who'd been out to Russia, putting his hands on the horses with kindness and explaining that, however briefly, and then having this horse gene anyway, of course, that was a gift. And then bringing that through from functional horsemanship to refined horsemanship to then A way of looking at the world and a way of looking at the horse that didn't just serve you in your professional career then with horses, but also helped you, for example, survive a very, very difficult situation like the one you described with Tellington, where you could not only survive it, but you could actually forgive him and love him afterwards and then therefore not negate all of the gifts and benefits of that relationship, not think in extremes like that, which is would have been understandable, but would not have been as helpful to you. And then you go on to run the school yourself. And then you end up in in Germany and people are watching you touch the horses like this. And then you discover Feldenkrais and there's a method to it. But as you say, Feldenkrais is, is quite complex and takes quite a long time to learn. And then realizing that it can be brought down to something simpler and more direct through intuition. I love it. And here you are giving it to the rest of us. So you say it's 22 books now? In... Twenty
2: books in 16 languages now.
1: 22 books in 16 languages. That's, that's not too shabby.
2: I just got my latest one in Korean, the dog book in Korean. Because we've had Korean people come to us in Hawaii for to do our trainings before COVID.
1: I have to joke because a dog book in Korean could, of course, be a, a, a Korean book as well. But in North Korean, but... I'm assuming it's not that. The this brings me to where I'd like to go now. So for those of you who are just discovering Linda today, you should go out and you have nothing to do with horses or dogs. Go anyway and look up Tea Touch on Google and start to practice some of the basic exercises on yourself, on your loved ones, because it will you're gonna find like the rest of us have done that it helps an awful lot. And then from there, you might want to to go onto a website, which I'll be giving to you at the end of this podcast. And so, you know, you've been, to say you've been massively successful is an understatement and also miss, I feel distract from the point of this conversation, which is, again, self actualization. I would posit that when you were a girl riding to school in Alberta, or when you were running this school with tellington or when you were beginning to do your first writings and explorations and i i would very much doubt that you went into it going i'm going to do this because this is going to make me rich and famous i would posit that you did it because it was what was in front of you and inside you to do Um, and the and the success of it is Purely down to its practicality, that when people try it, they go, "Oh, this works." I remember hearing it's a, a quote from Klaus Balkenhol, who, again, if, you, if those people who are not horse people, he was an Olympic dressage rider from Germany when Germany really began to dominate in the sport in the late 70s and 80s, and he, I know, brought you in to his Olympic horses um, at a time when nobody was doing anything like that, and oh, all the people say, "Well, it's this new age shit," you know. The, and he would, I remember him saying, well, she's a white witch, but I think you would say, no, I'm not a white witch. What I've, what I've stumbled into is purely something that works on a cellular level, which anybody can do. If, 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 if it relied upon Linda being a white witch, well, then it would only, it would die with Linda and it also wouldn't be transferable from Linda, but clearly, clearly it is. And here you are now, where do you want to go? What, what's next? What, what's, what's on the agenda?
2: Well, thanks to COVID, I am so blessed to finally have what I believe is the answer to how is it with this simple one-and-a-quarter circle? Anywhere we have a pain, we can reduce that pain in a matter of minutes. Or um, if we are fearful, we can overcome our fear just with these T-touches around the outside of the mouth for humans. Don't have to go inside, just around. I mean, this is. Think about this. Without this mouth, unless we're in a hospital, we can't survive. Yeah. So you can actually reduce your fear just and look. This is a, guys with beards are so lucky because this helps you think.
1: Yeah, it does. We all do this when we think. So I'm 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 stroking my beard, and what I do when I want to self-soothe is I, I, I massage my jaw. I realized. Yeah. Yeah, I will yeah. scratch my butt, but I can't do that when I'm in a chair.
2: Right? Yeah. So it it's all it's all logic. It's not it's it's the science and spirituality. That's what gets me. And finally, thanks to COVID, I've been doing a lot of teaching online for self self help. You can join me for like huh, every Tuesday for two hours. We have tea touch for self care and learning how when you've got a pain here, like. Oh, my husband had a real pain in his neck, like an eight level out of 10 pain yesterday. And I just started having him guide me. Not that I'm telling him, oh yeah, I'm going to fix this. No, no. What, where exactly does it hurt? And what pressure can I use? Is it very light that you like a little bit more? And have him guide me. And in 15 minutes, Pain that was on eight level was down to a two, and then it was gone after he got up. And that's what you can do to yourself. That's so cool because we have these ways of working with it. And thanks to COVID, Rupert, I now know why this one on the border works. So tell us. I'm going to tell you, and thanks to the influence of this book and all all this, these books behind me. You the have...
1: Code of Authentic Living right. Cellular Wisdom. by, right.
2: And it's written by Joan C. King. And what's interesting, she was, for 20 years, she was a cell biologist at Tufts University of Medicine. And she heard a legend that caused her to quit being a professor and take it into authentic living. And this book is about exactly how the cells work and what's so interesting. I had the great honor and pleasure of co-teaching a workshop with Dr. Bruce Lipton in Vienna about six years ago. I brought T-Touch and he brought his magic.
1: Who is Dr. Bruce Lipton for those who don't know?
2: Oh, he was, he is one of our visionaries in bringing science to, to, the rest of us, and he was he taught bio, cell biology at Stanford University for years, and then he he found in his first book, the Bi- biology of belief. He thought he wrote that what was being taught was so old and so out of date that he had to leave that and become a vision. What we now know him as a visionary, doing these wonderful. You can go online and find him. You are, do yourself a favor, and look up okay. Dr. Lipton and so he's interested in animals too so he knew what I did with with the course with dogs and horses and he loves dogs and so he showed me on his computer he showed me that every cell in the body has a huge number of known functions like like the number of is 100,000 I've got to check again to make sure this is correct but in this book she describes all of the amazing functions that are known. But what's not known is what causes, what's behind all these functions. And on the back of this book is the answer to that. And I, I, it's, it's, it's a Hindu legend. And I'm just going to tell you for time's sake. So the legend goes that at one time on this planet, every human could had the power of a god. They could do anything. And then humankind began to abuse that power. And the head Brahmin, Hindu Brahmin said, we have to stop this. We cannot allow the world to be damaged in this way. And so he said, we're going to take away this power from humankind. And so they had this big powwow. And they got together and they said, okay, who has an idea? How can we get, how can we hide this power that everyone has? And one said, I know, we'll take it to the highest mountain and we'll climb up there and we'll leave it. Nobody will find it. No, Head Brahman said, of course, humankind is very intelligent. They'll find it. Another one said, we'll go to the deepest ocean, part of the ocean, we'll drop it there. No, no, they'll find it. Then another said, I know, we'll go to the deepest cave known on the planet and dig deeper and hide it there. No, no, they'll find it. He sat for a long time quietly, just listening And then he said, I know where we'll hide it. Inside, they'll never find it. And so the legend goes that since that time, humankind has been running up the mountains, digging in the dirt, diving in the ocean, looking for this power that's always right here. And why this is so... When I read that, I thought, my Christian friends are not going to be interested in a human, in in a Brahmin legend. And so I called a friend of mine who knows the Bible really well and is a minister. And I said, where does it say that in the Bible? And he said, in the New King James Version, Luke 17, lines 20 and 21, the kingdom of God is within you and all around you. And it depends which version you read, exactly how that's said. But what I've since found, Rupert, it's in every religion. It's in, It's not just, it's everywhere. It's just understanding that the God was within in some places of the Bible, we don't want to be given that power because we are we are living manifestations of the divine universal intelligence. And so I realized with this one and a quarter circle, that's in all of nature, it's like turning a key to enter into this amazing body that we have where every cell knows its function in the body. And when we have fear or dysfunction, the communication between the self is inhibited, which is so beautifully discussed in Dr. Bruce Lipton's book, Spontaneous Evolution. So this communication between the selves, and that's what started me on this whole thing. You're going to develop a form of communication itself that that goes around the world. And this is the communication between us here, between us and ourselves, you know, between ourselves, it's that's all communication. And when we realize, wait a minute, we can just open ourselves to this phenomenal information that is in that quantum field. And if you don't know that, find one of the books by Doctor, B- not by by Greg Graydon, in his book, The Divine Matrix or The Field. It's you will get a whole other understanding of who you are and what your life is what you're here about when you when you read his books it's so i've
1: listened to some of his podcasts that he's he's quite extraordinary yeah
2: and those two bruce and bruce Lipton and greg braden do a lot of things together which are ah, life-changing i'd love to meet you and go there with you and iliana one day let's do it (laughs) it'll be really fun So you see where I am. I'm totally inspired about this. You know, we're all miracles. And that's how I see our animals and ourselves. And when we have something wrong with us, instead of seeing what's wrong, wait a minute, we can visualize the light in ourselves and we can actually either do it with our mind as you get from, you know, so many of these wonderful, we've got so many visionaries out there talking about how you can affect yourself just from what you think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where does COVID come into this for you?
2: COVID was a life game changer for me because during that time when we couldn't teach and couldn't be traveling around the world, my sister, Robin Hood, who's 14 years younger than I am. Of course, you
1: have a sister called Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah.
2: I do because our family name is Hood and I got to name her. (laughs) (laughs) She and my niece, Mandy Pretty, they put together our work Online, so you can go to learn. for Canada, and you can get a free introduction to this.
1: So, www.
2: yeah learn
1: learn L-E-R-N, dot .touch. t touch two t's and then o u c h t touch.
2: Right. dot yeah. c a
1: dot c a for Canada. Got right. it? Okay.
2: And my sister and Mandy have been putting out these wonderful courses, short courses that you can take online. So besides having practitioners all around where you can you can see if you can get a a teacher practitioner, you can read one of my books, which are all on Amazon, or you can go to that website and get an introduction. And Rupert, you are always my inspiration. I have to tell you this, the time that I have spent with you and Ileana and the amazing work you do with your horses, it's just been life-changing for me. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and how much I love coming on and hearing your thinking and your questions and what you bring to the world and your books. If anybody has not read your book, like I, every book of yours, I start and I can't put it down. And I just thank you for gifting the world with your thinking and what you've done.
1: That's extraordinarily high praise. And I wasn't expecting that. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I remember the first time I heard that you were even interested in our work. We were in Wales, me and Eliana, intensively learning the old master system of dressage and going bopping between there and Portugal and other places and stuff, on our apprenticeship. And she came and she said, Linda Tennant Jones has just contacted us and is sort of interest, sort of vaguely interested in the horse boy stuff. I'm like, that's extraordinary because she's in the stratosphere and we are these people grubbing about on the hippie margins. And I've always felt extremely honored and grateful, I have to say, just to, just to know you, let alone to be introduced to the healing methodologies. If somebody wants to become, to do more than learn some techniques for themselves and their horses, and they actually want to become a practitioner of T-Touch, what do they need to do?
2: Well, we're just getting to that point that you, you can do a lot of it online now. That's the beautiful part. And then we have these workshops and they're all listed on our website. So, um, and I'm dropping back and just doing mostly like this online because it's so much fun for me to share and to have so many of, we have wonderful practitioners out there who can teach this. and And for me, getting to spend time with you and getting to spend time online where we can even reach out, you know, to people who are in Iceland and parts of Africa where they can never get the chance to get to a practitioner. <clears throat>
1: Linda, you yourself got COVID. Well, how did that inform your practice? How did how did T-Touch help you, you know, physician heal thyself, that old adage? What insights did you gain from your own experience with it?
2: Well, what COVID brought to me, when I went into COVID, I have videos of me doing this. It's an exercise where you practice your your ability to be flexible. And I was really good. I could get up and down on the floor. I could do all this stuff. And then when I began to discover is I was getting stiffer from not getting out and being with people and doing things. And then I, I've, for years, I've been really careful about checking my blood levels and my, Mm -hmm. the, making sure that I don't have stuff in my body that I shouldn't have. So I wound up about four years ago being diagnosed with Epstein-Barr and with Hashimoto's and 25 years ago, I got rid of chronic fatigue using the radionics machine and just eaten, working with a, a doctor who just had me on a vegetable diet and worming medicine, okay. which is really important for all of us. Anybody who eats vegetables or or is around animals should be wormed like we were our animals. And so anyway, through COVID, I found out I was you know, getting stiffer and slower, that was the downside. And so I, what, I have to say more the gifts that that it's brought to me, because, because we were doing so much online every Tuesday and one Sunday a month, we practicing taking care of each other. Like people would say, oh my gosh, this this arm is in spasm. I can't get to a doctor. I can't get out of spasm. So I could Have everybody in the class do this. Just try this. Just put one hand on your arm. Make it move, like cup your hand and move the tissue and just do a full lift up. Ah, And just lift your shoulder a little bit and hold it. And then slowly, slowly, slowly release it. And feel that like some of you will feel it just this little <laughs> release in it because we get so tight sitting at our computers and not having the you with because you had horses. So you never went through that isolation, did you?
1: No. In fact, weirdly, COVID ended up being one of the busiest times for us because you could right. stop sort of to the barn to exercise your horses. And then everyone we knew got bored and wanted to buy a horse. And then suddenly... All the other work it dried up, but suddenly we were writing instructors because that right. what we wanted to do. Yeah, so we were in the in the forest the whole time. It's, you know, being in the arena was sometimes allowed, sometimes not allowed. So it was a strange be functional time for us, but I do know that that was not everyone else's experience.
2: Yeah, so what I learned by doing this, just like you and I are, a person that could have like like one thing with a knee, for instance, bone on bone. Couldn't get the surgery. I had no one to take care of her when she could have gotten it, and so I just guided her with these little tiny what we call raccoon touches, and to find out she was just thinking it was her knee, but it was actually if you just feel gently, where is it painful and I would fo- I just had her follow it down and in and then she found out, oh wow, that's sore all the way down my leg. And then you go off the area that's that's sore and just with the gentlest movements of whatever part of your fingers you can use, it's just like moving the tissue as lightly as possible in this one and a quarter movement. And it's like connecting into this intelligence, just whatever you want to call it, divine source, universal God intelligence that we are. Every cell, that's been science, that's the science behind that and it's totally proven.
1: So it's interesting that, you know, yeah, you're not, you're not saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm superhuman because of all this. You've gone through chronic fatigue, you've gone through Epstein-Barr, you've gone through Hashimoto's and Hashimoto's, as we know, it's a thyroid thing. It's something one lives with rather than gets rid of, but some people present it rather obviously, some people do not. I would, I would never have thought that to to know you and look at you and see how, active and vital you, you always are. And I'm always astonished that you're getting off planes and dealing with jet lag and and, and and doing all this stuff. When you got COVID, you like quite a lot of people who got COVID ended up with a sort of a long COVID, but you have also managed to keep traveling. I just met you in, and I'm talking to you in, in Jupiter, Florida, but I not so long ago was talking to you in Germany. How has T-Touch? allowed you to deal with that long COVID. And what of the long COVID do you suffer from? How much of the T-Touch do you use to alleviate suffering? And how much do you use for general maintenance? And what's what's the equation?
2: Well, the equation here is looking for all sides. What can I do with T-Touch with my, you know, when I get anxious and I'm boggy headed, I can do the heart hug and breathe and bring myself into calmness. But what's really important, because I'm 85 and this COVID has affected many people much younger than I am in ways that would be later. It affects the hearing. So I'm really paying attention, Rupert, to, you know, what's being said now is that our, our hearing, or if you have tinnitus, which I've had for about seven years. That affects our memory. And I was getting really anxious because my memory, I am still usually names and times and places that are at my fingertips, but I was losing them. And that was making me really anxious. So it's through this light oxytocin, light contact to activate the oxytocin and this one and a quarter circle thing, wait a minute, I can connect into this divine intelligence in my body. And then, but I need way more than that, you all. i I went to Costco and I got my hearing tested, and everybody said, "Oh, come on, why are you doing that?" Because you're you don't have a problem with hearing. Well, I wasn't aware of it, but when I went and did the COVID testing, which I really recommend, they give you amazing. Everybody says it's the best you can get. I had a mild to extreme hearing loss, and they say that's what causes us to lose our membrane so I'm so I'm wrestling with that you all (laughs) and also I'm I did a sleep apnea test because who would ever think that you wouldn't get enough oxygen at night unless you're paying attention so that can have to do with my Epstein bar so and I go to integrative doctors and I use whatever all kinds of different ways I get IV glutathione which
1: How often or, do you do that?
2: Oh, a couple of times. At leaves once a month, sometimes twice. Yeah.
1: Okay, okay. I'm just i I have a, a a bit of a knowledge of glutathione only because for those of us who've lived with children with autism, there can be when we had Rowan, my oldest son, who was autistic, tested in the early days for various things. It turned out that he did lack a gene that produced glutathione. And we gave him glutathione, which is, some people may know, it, it's a chelating agent. It washes, it's, it's a natural product that your body produces to wash toxins and other bad things out of your system. So you, and so we would give him glutathione and then at a certain point, it, it seemed that we could stop. How long have you been taking glutathione? That's interesting.
2: Well, I started taking it in a liquid form three years ago. And I'm going to test for it again because I just found a place where I can get an IV. So I've done six of those. And that question is how much you need. I don't know. I mean, I think that when your body's suffering from, you know, Epstein-Barr and, this, and long COVID, which we don't know, but I'm I'm today I'm going to be in touch with my... I have a friend in Germany who's a really wonderful integrative doctor. And I she has two horses and I trade her... <laughs> support with her horses and she gives me support with all our blood work, and, you know, the uh, thinking of, of how do you affect your body without the drugs?
1: You know, what I, what I love about this, Linda is, is so often when one is talking with people who are practitioners of, let's say alternative health, there's often a feeling, I think among them that they have to present themselves as shiny examples of perfect health otherwise people won't believe in what they do they'll be like well you're sick so how can you stuff but what i love is that you can wear this on your sleeve and say no no I, I get sick like anybody else i get i get the same things that other people do but i've got this busy work schedule like i kind of have to keep going i have to keep getting on planes when i you know up until a couple of years ago listeners uh, linda was living in hawaii but you know spending half the year touring europe i, I don't know how you did the jet lag and the and the exhaustion. I'm flying. Yeah, but yet there you are, sort of showing. Look, if if you manage yourself, yes, you can get these things. These things are sort of natural things to get, but it doesn't have to stop you, and it doesn't have to impair your quality of life.
2: Well, that is the question, and I I think it's why we need to talk about these, because there are days when I'm really foggy, and I'm. what they've discovered now recently, there have been big conferences in Germany with the integrative doctors uh, finding out that there are protein strands apparently in the blood of people with long COVID. So I want to know if I can be tested for that, because I'd love to know. Because if you know that, then you can start using the energy and talking about how we can affect you know the light in ourselves, bringing light into the fogginess in the head, and talking to other friends who have it and manage to keep going That's, yeah. my, that's my question.
1: You know it's interesting. what springs to mind is I, I forget where they did this study. You know you read these studies, but it was a study on monks and nuns, I think Christian monks and nuns who didn't appear, who were very old, who didn't appear to be suffering. The effects of dementia or Alzheimer's, et cetera. But when they looked at their brains, the, the same brain shrinkage and the same apparent brain degradation had happened, yet they were not really showing much that was symptomatic. But yet there they were engaging with nature, working in the gardens, leading a very spiritual life, leading a very actualized life, at least on their terms, connected in a, in a community, strong connection with the divine, strong intellectual life. And what was interesting is that on paper, they had the same issues to the same extent that people with a grossly deteriorated quality of life had, yet they did not have this grossly deteriorated quality of life. And I find this fascinating. And there seems to be a parallel there with what you're talking about, that you can have no, no one would look at you. I'm looking at you right now. The listeners can't see you, but I do not see somebody or nor am I hearing somebody who I would describe in any degree as foggy. But there you are saying, well, Rue, you know, there are days when I am. I love this honesty because it gives us faith that we could manage ourselves too.
2: Well, I think, and for me, having, having this concept that I can put my own hand Melt my hands on my body, and we didn't talk about the how we've named the different parts of the hands that we use to make this one in a quarter circle. We've given them animal names, but you see, during COVID, there were two interesting things that came up for me. It was said that there's a real happening of what's called feeling deficit syndrome that people weren't feeling themselves, weren't feeling their bodies because we don't shake hands, the hugging, all that the mingling. And the other thing it said was that nature deficit syndrome. Yeah. For those who weren't having horses they could go out or couldn't walk their dog or didn't walk their dog, stuck inside. But for me, it's also, I don't know what you just said about the nuns being in the community. I've had, I had, I had what they call a mini stroke, which is actually TIA. I had it on. What does I think,
1: TIA stand for?
2: Oh, I forget the word. It's, I don't know. We'll look it, it up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it's a word I should memorize and I I can't remember it, but it's it's just it's a warning for a stroke. And I the bet. thing is, I had no I had there was no clotting and no bleeding. They don't know what caused it. Which is it but to me it was a wake up call. So that's when I said, Okay, man, I'm getting my ears tested. I'm getting my sleep apnea and I'm just waiting and I've been talking to me. Quite a few friends I found out who have these DPAP thing. And and because when they tested me, Robert, Uh I I told you this before, I was found during the night to have like many episodes of only 68% oxygen. And the thing that's so wild is that I woke up with dreams like five, six years ago in Hawaii. I kept waking up and I said to Roland, I have to get more oxygen. And I tried to rent an oxygen machine, but, you know, you have to have a doctor and you have to know what you're doing. And it's very expensive if you don't have insurance or have a doctor's prescription. So finally, I'm waiting here for this CPAP. And when I say foggy, I don't know what that means. It's sometimes I feel like I'm not in my body and that's when I can use T-Touch. But as soon as I start talking to you and I think of all the people that we're reaching, talking, then I get clear and I'm connected. It's like I'm connected into that oneness of all. So I I have that feeling of the community and this connection to all of us. And so I, I, my sister came for two weeks and I have another sister here now for another two weeks and I need friends around me because just as one of the things that they say is you get isolated. You know, when you have a stroke or you have something like this, and you're not as oh, good. Does
1: that mean I can invite myself with my rambunctious children to come and disrupt your life in Florida? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd
2: love to have you when we get our guest house built. But with you can you and Liliana, we have room for you without the children when we get the guest house built. Now they can come down our slide because we have a pool with a slide. Ooh. Well, it was built for two children.
1: Okay, I can so, Listen, Linda, here's my, my request. We're, we're you know, right at a two and a half hours here. And um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. As I said at the before we're doing our preamble, we have another podcast, which is Equine Assisted World. And obviously you have been in this world and a pioneer in this world for the longest time. Now we, we have sort of the history of how you became you and what you do. Would you do us the honor of coming on to Equine Assisted World in the next week or two, and to us in more depth, we can because re- as you say, we didn't get into the different parts of the hand. There's we we've, we've barely touched on what T touch is. We've really just said that it exists and given some people an idea of a first contact. But I think we'd be doing listeners a disservice if we didn't, you know, when when I'm out there training horseboy method, for example, I'm always saying, "Have you discovered T touch?" You know, and there's always a percentage of people that go, oh, yes, absolutely. And then there's people, of course, who say, oh, what's that? And it's always my great pleasure to say, it's a thing you should know. So would you you please come on again and we can go into more depth?
2: Rupert, it is such an honor and a pleasure for me to spend time with you. And I love your questions always, but I, I just, I have to tell you, I have a lot of books here and so many people have influenced my books, but. The books that stand out in my mind that cannot put this book down were your books. You are, and the the long ride home. Holy moly, all of your experiences, but it's the way you express yourself, listeners. You have to get those books. I mean, your courage, but your 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 Smith. I'm I'm a wordsmith. I just love words and the way you use it it's like nobody. Nobody, I know, Robert. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. M- Emotion in, in these words that you put, it just jumps out of the page that made.
1: Thank you. Speaking of books, if people were to pick up a book by you, you've got 22 of them, where should they start? What's the book that they should pick up to understand you and your work, at, at least as a beginning step?
2: Well, maybe my latest. It depends if they're into horses or dogs. My latest horse book, I wrote with my Mary.
0: What is this one?
2: This one's called Training and Retraining the Tellington Way.
1: Okay, Training and Retraining Horses the Tellington Way. Very good, and people can find that on Amazon.
2: Amazon. Right.
1: And then, if they're into dogs, what should they what should they read?
2: Into dogs. Where is my dog book? get the exact title. I've got the clear. so many books here. So, getting in tea touch with your dog.
1: Tea touch with your dog.
2: Getting getting in tea touch with your dog.
1: Getting in tea touch with your dog. Getting in tea touch with your dog.
2: Right, and okay. if they're if they're into human, get in touch tea touch for health care.
1: Tea touch for health care. So, if you're just into this for a human point of view. T Touch for healthcare. Price. Perfect. And let's just give people your URL again, your website again to.
2: Yes. To get the classes, you go to learn.ttouch.ca.
1: www.learn.ttouch.ca. Yes. Got it. Right. Okay. All right, Linda. Thank you. I. Must go. I have someone who's in the saddle who'll be wait, expecting me there in 15 minutes. i to <laughs> jump in the car and go. Otherwise, I'll be cross. Um, hey. I cannot thank you enough for this. It's been such a treat. I know our listeners will feel the same. And I can't wait to have you back on for Equine Assisted World to go deeper into T-Touch and how it works.
2: I look forward to it. And I look forward to sharing the stuff I did for years before there was ever an association.
1: All right. Let's do
0: it. See you soon. Okay. Much love. Much love. Bye-bye. Aloha. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.